A dog barks when his master is attacked. I would be a coward if I saw that God's truth is attacked and yet would remain silent. John Calvin. I do not. And don't you ever say I did. This is my Bible. I am what it says I am. <laughs> There's probably a, a balance between, I believe you have to know Christ, but... God is in hell. He is. And someone knows this for sure. All of mankind is going to end up somewhere in heaven. <laughs> My mission really is to just help people of faith, especially, to re-examine this issue, to realize the church has got things wrong in the past. For those who are gods by faith in his son... <laughs> Right, 2 Corinthians 3 7. Victory in the name which is above every name. There's no exception for rape or incest. Uh, it's an extreme law. <laughs> and... Right now, bones, ligaments, tendons, in Jesus' name, get out here right now. What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to The Master's Dog, episode 58. I am your host, The Evangelical Norm. So, The Master's Dog is my podcast where I deal with false teachers, heretics, you name it, we deal with it here. It started out as Faith and Beliefs Refuted, where I dealt with, uh, responded to videos put out by the Saints Unscripted, formerly known as Three Mormons podcast, under the title Faith and Beliefs. They started with the LDS Articles of Faith. I said I would respond to every single video they did under that section of their podcast, and I have done so to this point. Um, and later on, I expanded it to deal with all kinds of false teachers, uh, prosperity, gospel, so on. Um, so today we are we are back to what we've done from the beginning, and we're dealing with the faith and beliefs uh, of the LDS people from the Saints Unscripted podcast. David Snell is going to get into something today that I really never expected to be in the faith and beliefs portion. Um, because it really doesn't fall under that. It's it's a history thing. But 
they've been mixing it up with a lot of stuff. So it's not just faith and belief section of their podcast is not just dealing with doctrine, faith and beliefs. It's, it's dealing with history. They did a five part uh, flyover uh, look at Christian history as Mormons view it. And um, so now we're getting into more history. And again, I never thought I'd, I'd see them do anything like this. But the day David is going to kind of take us through the history of the Mountain Meadows Massacre. Now, there not a whole lot I would refute in what he says, simply because my knowledge of the, the of the detailed history of the Mountain Meadows Massacre is not that great. I you know, never even heard of it for until I late in my life. So, and that's going to be a little bit of what we're going to talk about. So I'll let him go. If there is things that pop up that I want to address as we go, I will, but more than likely, we're just going to let him tell us the LDS side of the story, basically. Um, and then we'll talk about a little something at the end. So with that, we will jump in here and let David Tell us about the Mountains Meadow, Mount, excuse me, Mountain Meadows Massacre. Hey guys, we're going to talk about something pretty heavy today. There's that word again, heavy. Historian Richard Turley summed up the issue well. On September 11th, 1857, some 50 to 60 local militiamen in southern Utah, aided by some American Indians, massacred about 120 immigrants who were traveling by wagon to California. The horrific crime, which spared only 17 children aged six and under, occurred in a highland valley called the Mountain Meadows, roughly 35 miles southwest of Cedar City. We're going to cover this issue in two parts. In this episode, we're just going to talk about what happened. And in the next episode, we'll talk about the aftermath of the event, and we'll answer some common questions. Cue the intro. Latter-day Saints by 1857 were no strangers to persecution. They thought they'd be safe under their own system of government in Utah, which at the time they settled there was safely outside of the United States, until the Mexican-American War ended and Utah was annexed. The Saints drove out some federal appointees and sent a legislative message demanding greater control of the territory. Considering their actions rebellious, U.S. President James Buchanan sent a large part of the U.S. Army to seat and protect a new set of officers, including a non-Latter-day Saint governor, to replace Brigham Young. This marks the beginning of the Utah War. War. You call that a war? Brigham Young and the Saints, recalling past maltreatment at the hands of some government officials on all levels, thought incoming soldiers meant an invasion, and they intended to fight back. You will be forced out! Young instructed the Saints to stockpile their grain and other supplies in preparation for war, instead of trading goods out to emigrant trains passing through. That was understandably frustrating to an emigrant train that tried with a little success to resupply in Cedar City. Tensions ran high, and a few emigrants made some idle threats against the Saints. Hey, bro. You're cruising for a bruising. Enter stage right. Isaac Haight, the mayor of Cedar City, also a militia major and stake president. One account said that cursing and drunk men went to Haight's house and demanded that he come out, if he was a man. The men also yelled threats about sending an army from California to seize young Haight, Dame, who we'll meet in a moment, and every other Mormon in the country. Haight tried to have these men arrested for intoxication and disturbing the peace, but was forced to back down when he didn't have enough policemen to carry out the order. He needs a bad man. 
So Major Haight appealed to the district militia commander, William Dame, also a stake president in nearby Parowan, for permission to call out the militia against the wagon train to make those arrests and likely charge some fines. Dame convened a council which told Haight to ignore the threats. Words are but wind, they injured no one. But Haight and some others, angry and probably afraid, wouldn't let things go. So they concocted a terrible, totally unjustifiable plan. Very bad feeling about this. With the help of militia major John D. Lee, they planned to rile up local Native Americans and have them attack the wagon train that had since left town. Under no one's authority but their own, they set the wheels of their plan in motion. On Sunday, September 6th, Haight again brought up the question of the wagon train at a local council meeting, but withheld the fact that the cogs of his plan were already turning. The council decided a rider should be sent to Brigham Young to seek his advice on what to do. But it was too late. John D. Lee led the first attack on the emigrants on Monday morning. The emigrant train circled the wagons and hunkered down for the siege. To make matters worse, there were two emigrants who had been off looking for lost cattle at the time of the attack. Two white militia leaders tracked them down and tried to kill them before they became privy to the situation and went for help. But one of the emigrants survived and made it back to the wagon circle. Now the emigrants knew that white men, Latter-day Saints, were involved in the attack. Oh, great. Mormons! The conspirators were faced with a haunting dilemma. If the party was allowed to live, they'd surely spread word of the attack, which could bring down the wrath of the United States, down on them and their families. The other option was unimaginably evil, to kill everyone old enough to tell stories about what had happened. But to do that, they'd need more help from the militia. And for that, they'd need permission from the commanding officer, William Dame. Isaac Haight met in council with Dame and other Parowan leaders on Wednesday, September 9th. The council decided to send the militia to help the emigrants gather their scattered cattle and continue on to California. But Haight met privately with Dame after the council, hoping to reverse the decision. This is a secret meeting, Quince. It's not totally clear what happened at that meeting, but Haight left feeling like he had permission to call out the militia to deal the final blow, which he did. On September 11th, under a white flag, John D. Lee convinced the emigrants to lay down their arms, promising that the militia would escort the party back to Cedar City. Well, I've got a bad feeling about this. About a mile down the trail, at a predetermined signal, the militiamen launched an attack in which everyone in the party except 17 young children was killed. Two days later, the reply from Brigham Young arrived, which said, In regard to emigration trains passing through our settlements, we must not interfere with them until they're first notified to keep away. You must not meddle with them. If those who are there will leave, let them go in peace. When Isaac Haight read the message, he reportedly sobbed, saying, too late, too late. Now, this has been a very brief description of this event. If you want to dive deeper, I highly recommend this book, which is extremely thorough. The Mountain Meadows Massacre was a shameful tragedy, and there are still lots of questions and conspiracy theories about this event that we're going to look at in the next episode. Once that episode is up, we'll link it in the description. Check out the other links and notes below while you're at it, and have a great day. Okay, so that was, like he said, a very brief uh, explanation, which... So here's the thing about the Mountain Meadows Massacre. It, Again, I don't know how much of what he said is true. Because, again, dealing with LDS history, it's very revisionist. Um, as you look at things that happened from years ago and the recorded history from years ago, those things get changed. 
because the Mormons lie. Bottom line, the history of the LDS church is filled with lies, with deceptions and so on. So I would say take any of this, this video, any of the stuff that he said with very, very much with a grain of salt, do your own research. From what I know of the Mountain Meadows Massacre, and, and here's my biggest issue. I grew up in, in Utah. If this was the way that it was, just a, a horrible thing that happened and, you know, and so on, and it had really nothing to do with the leadership of the LDS Church or anything else, um, why was it never taught no Utah history class, social studies class that I ever took while I was a student here in Utah up through the eighth grade was the Mountain Meadows Massacre ever mentioned, ever. I never heard of it until I got to, to uh, high school in Colorado, and then I remember it being kind of glossed over in because we're in Colorado we're not really dealing with Utah history anymore um, it was I think it was in a US history class and it was basically briefly mentioned but I saw a uh, I can't remember what channel it was on whether it was a history channel or whatever but I did see a uh, like a three-part miniseries explanation of the Mountain Meadows Massacre and I was shocked I was shocked that I had never heard of this. My entire time living in Utah, I had never heard of this. Well, again, this is Utah. And it's really hard to separate the state from the church in which it is founded. And so all of the the, the history classes were basically whitewashed, right? So with the fact that this was never taught, and I don't know if it is now or not, the reason why the, the LDS are coming out and talking about it now is the internet. You can't hide from it. You can't hide from it. So now they're coming out and they're spinning. So again, this is like things that we're dealing with right now. The, the, the issues with, with George Floyd and, and his death uh, at the hands or the knee of a police officer. And then you get people who want to bring up his criminal history, right? And and this is, you know, as if to oh try to justify what the what the officer did because of this criminal history. This is what this story did. I mean, immediately they're they're blaming in a sense the the wagon train, the 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 Fancher I can't remember the Fancher something party. Um that I have it right here. I don't know why I didn't. Uh, let me get the name again. The uh, Baker Fancher wagon train. Sorry. Um, immediately, as his, his story starts, we start getting drunken guys and threats and so on, and and it's all premised, prefaced by premise, prefaced by the fear of war and um, armies and so on. So he's, he's literally giving some, and even though he says it's a horrible crime and it's a horrible thing, they're, they're laying the foundation of justification 
because we were in we're fearful and and they made threats and, and so on. So you see the the veiled attempt at, at, at justifying, at least in part, what happened. Um, and so the the horrible and then they leave out he leaves out the portions where the the Mormon men many of them actually dressed up like Indians. So whether or not actual Native Americans uh, participated in this at all, we really don't know. There is evidence that there may have been a few that were brought in um, somehow, but the majority of the Native Americans that attacked this, this wagon train were Mormon men dressed up in war paint. So, and then again, just the horrible fact that, that they, uh, you know, did this under a white flag. They, there was knowledge that this was a horrible thing. Personally, I'm pretty sure Brigham Young knew what was going on. You, you've got to understand this was this, the, the government was basically a theocracy at the time. It was a religious state set up with Brigham Young as the governor and the prophet and the president. And I doubt anything went on without his knowledge. And I would dare say, based on the history of the things that we've read, that Brigham Young taught and said, I have no doubt that this was all ordered by Brigham Young. But again, I have to back off and go, I have no facts. I have no proof. Um, you know, this convenient letter coming back from Brigham Young saying, leave these people alone. Um, I, again, I just think it's convenience. So uh, historically, I mean, this is a, a horrible thing. It's a, America's first 9-11, and it was, it was absolutely a horrific uh, crime that was, was done and massacre against these people. And the fact that they kept and let 17 children under the age of six live and those kids were raised up in the LDS community um, not remembering, not knowing and some of them remembered vaguely um, but essentially the the party was, was murdered and these children were stolen and that's what is, is not mentioned it's not like these kids were sent on to go be with relatives or whatever they were basically kidnapped and raised um, in the Mormon community. So, again, we'll, it'll be interesting to see what comes with next week. But there's the thing. You've, you've got to recognize that the fact of if you look at what Mormon history has been taught over the years, it consistently changes from decade to decade. And as the information superhighway gets more and more robust than the the teachings of the Mormon church of their history change as they can no longer hide uh, or deceive of what actually happens. So, I mean, it'll be it'll even be more interesting to see if anything new uh, comes up with this over the next 20 years. Um, but we'll see. 
again, all we can do is watch. So thanks for hanging in, and I hope that this was helpful. Uh, next week will probably be a whole lot more detailed and informative, so I'll be interested to see what they come up with in that. So as always, preach the gospel at all times. Use words. They're necessary. And until next week, Soli Deo Gloria. Mm-hmm.